This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society. Hello and welcome to Let's Get Physiological. The podcast where we explore some of the fascinating ins and outs of the science of life. Today we'll be exploring balance and learning about how our bodies are able to detect where we are in space. We'll be speaking to Doris Bamio, Professor of Neuroaudiology at the UCL Ear Institute to learn about the vestibular system and how it helps us to control our balance. And to Raymond Reynolds, a Senior Lecturer in Motor Control at the University of Birmingham to find out what happens when things go wrong. I'm Amy Warnock. And I'm Emily Wilde. Now, let's get physiological. Humans are bipedal, meaning that we stand on two legs, which is relatively unusual for mammals. This obviously creates a problem in that we need to have a pretty good sense of balance. One of the key components which helps us balance is located in our inner ear, and it's called the vestibular system. To find out more about the vestibular system, we spoke to Doris Bamio, Professor of Neuroaudiology at the UCL Ear Institute. The vestibular system starts from the ear and continues in the brain. It's the system that monitors how we move, how we stand relative to gravity, and how we navigate in a real-life environment. We need the system uh, so we can move without falling, we can locate ourselves in space, and also that we can coordinate our movements and eye movements while we navigate. So the vestibular system is responsible for providing our brain with information about motion, head position and spatial orientation. It's also involved with motor functions that allow us to keep our balance, stabilise our head and body during movement and maintain posture. But how does the system detect changes in movement and send them to the brain? There is a very clever mechanism within the vestibular system that translates movement or standing information into electrical information and neurochemical information that is sent up to the brain. So the brain knows about our movement, standing and navigation. Within the ear, we've got the balance organ, which has five different components. These five different organelles are membranous formations inside fluid and they've got the so-called sensory cells. These are very important because these are the ones that sense how we move or how we stand. And if these are dead, then they send no information. These cells have got some hair on the top. So when we move in a certain direction, these hairs are bent And depending on how they are bent and if they are bent, they open some channels so that the fluid that has got electrical, let's say, uh, content goes through this and creates an electrical current. And this creates discharges at the base of the cells, which are then sent further up the brain as electrical activity. This only happens in a certain organ out of the five balance organs if we move in a certain direction or in a certain way. 
So the brain can thus monitor via these five organs very accurately what direction of movement we're doing or whether we are standing but we have our head bent forward or to the side. So that's how the movement information or the standing information is translated into electrical activity and then neurochemical activity into the brain and the brain can monitor movement and balancing. So as Doris said, there are five organs that make up the vestibular system. Three of these are called semicircular canals. These consist of three tubes positioned approximately at right angles to one another, that are each situated in a plane in which the head can rotate. This design allows each of the canals to detect one of the following head movements, nodding up and down, shaking side to side, or tilting left and right. These movements are then contrasted with those detected by the two otolith organs, which help to detect linear acceleration, so this is moving forwards or backwards, as well as gravitational forces. Using a system of small hairs and liquid, the vestibular system is able to detect tiny movements which activate signals that are then sent to the brain that tell us where our body is in space. This is obviously important for balance and coordinating our movement, but the vestibular system also has another function, explained to us by Raymond Reynolds, a senior lecturer in motor control at the University of Birmingham. One of the other main important reasons for having a vestibular system is, is for controlling your eye movements. Even when you're sitting reading a book, there will be very tiny eye movement, uh, head movements, sorry, which might cause your vision to go blurry. And we have a system in place called the vestibular ocular reflex. And this works exactly the same as an image stabilization system on a modern SLR camera. And essentially it compensates any head movement with an equivalent eye movement. So for example, if your head rotates very slightly to the left, you will reflexively and unconsciously produce an eye movement to the right, which perfectly compensates for that head movement. And that's called the vestibular ocular reflex, and it's very important for allowing us to remain fixated on, a, on the scene without the scene becoming blurry. And so one of the main problems you, you suffer from when you lose your vestibular system is so-called oscillopsia, where the scene goes very blurry. So, if it wasn't for the vestibular ocular reflex, which helps to stabilise our vision, we would have problems with blurred vision, as our eyes wouldn't be able to compensate for every small movement of our head. So coordinating our balance is a complex process and something that many of us take for granted. But what's happening when things go wrong? We refer to balance disorders when there is a problem with the musculoskeletal or neurological system that controls balance or the vestibular system, but we need to appreciate that balance involves sensory information from the vestibular system about movement, but also sensory information from the eyes and sensory information from our joints and muscles that tell us how we, we stand or even move. Balance disorders are the problems that people experience when this system is somehow not efficient, not functional enough. And this can be because of a problem in the vestibular system. For example, you have a head injury and the balance organs inside the inner ear are damaged or the balance nerves are damaged. Or, 
for example, this can be affected if you take certain antibiotics that affect uh, and destroy uh, vestibular sensing hair cells. Um, but you can have balance disorders because of other reasons. For example, somebody has got a stroke and the part of the brain that is supposed to generate commands into uh, the motor system doesn't work. That would also be a balance disorder. Or you can have balance disorders because other parts of the brain that control uh, muscular function are affected. For example, that happens in Parkinson's. And another thing that people need to appreciate is, obviously, the brain is a complex mechanism. For balance, I have already mentioned that we need the sensory information from eyes, balance organs, muscles and joints, but we also need um, uh, output information, and again, this will be muscles. And in addition to that, this system has got connections with other parts of the brain. For example, it connects with parts of the brain that controls mood. So patients with different types of balance disorders can have problems with mood because of this connection rather than any other reason. And uh, also balance disorders and vestibular disorders in particular, because of the connection of the vestibular system with the system that controls our gastrointestinal system is also leading to symptoms from this part when you have a vestibular disorder. And what I mean by that is you can feel sick or you can even vomit if you have a vestibular disorder that leads to major symptoms of vertigo. So balance disorders aren't necessarily just related to the vestibular system. They can also be caused by problems with our muscles, a stroke or even certain antibiotics. So how common are balance disorders? Balance disorders are quite frequent. About 15% of adults are reported to have a balance or dizziness problem. And we have to appreciate that these problems are become more prevalent as we grow older. And in particular, the odds of having a problem of balance that relates to the vestibular system uh, increase with age. Uh, and up to 80% of older adults will suffer from vestibular-related balance problems or dysfunction. There was an American study that proposed that vertigo relating to vestibular disorders affects 8.4% of the adult population over one year. So you understand that uh, it's a very frequent problem. And it has also been reported that of those who fall, 30% will have a fall because of problems relating to balance and gait disorders. And the cost uh, of these falls is huge to health systems. For example, in the European Union, it was 25 billions per year uh, a few years back. So balance disorders are very common, and particularly amongst those that are older, can often cause falls, which can cause serious injuries. 
Fortunately, it's been shown that certain exercises can help to improve postural stability and balance. Doris told us about an exciting project that she's been working on called Hollow Balance, which hopes to help. What I'm very excited about is that we have uh, a research project that is funded by the European Union. And this project is trying to come up with a technological solution that older adults with falls can use at home to do exercises with a kind of technological supervision. So the idea is that we'll have a physiotherapist avatar projected by means of virtual augmented reality in the patient's home. And this avatar will give them information about the exercises that they need to do and feedback as they do the exercises. And we'll monitor uh, these older adults with some sensors they wear in their insoles, on their wrists and some uh, glasses. If we make this right, and uh, we were going to start a trial very soon, but of course this has been deferred for a few months now, this means that we'll be able to give support to older adults to do these exercises from home, so conveniently for them, with expert input and supervision, but also uh, this will reduce the demand on the health services because there will be less need for specialist input uh, while the patient is doing the exercises. So we're very excited about this project. It's called Holobalance, and you can look it up online, holobalance.eu. So now it is time for, oh my God, I can't believe that's a research study, but it actually is. So this is the part of the show where we explore some of the more interesting and strange experiments in the world of physiology. Okay, so for this, oh my God, I can't believe it's a research study, but it actually is. Amy, I want you to take your mind back to either those kind of dreaded, in my case, or anticipated sports days at school. Did you have a particular sport of choice? Um, yeah, so I was 800 metres and also long jump nice. were the two that I, I was sort of had to do. Yes, yes. Was it because you were quite tall for your age in school and therefore they thought you had long legs? Absolutely. I think it was mainly because I was one of the only people that semi-enjoyed doing sports. So they just kind of put me in for as much <laughs> as possible. <laughs> yeah, so I was also in the kind of long jump or triple jump because I, I was quite tall and they were like, yeah, but you do all the kind of jumpy ones. You've got long legs. Um, but it wasn't my favourite. Anyway, uh, the particular sport that we'll be talking about today is the discus. Oh, okay. Did you ever do this at school? I mean, I did it in PE, but I never, never competed never. in sports day. <laughs> Professionally. <laughs> um, so for those of you who maybe haven't heard of it, or like me, maybe have tried to put any kind of sports day activity out of your head for the last 15 years, this is the event whereby somebody throws a heavy disc called a discus um, in an attempt to kind of throw it further than your competitors it's kind of like a really heavy frisbee isn't it kind of (laughs) yeah exactly yeah it's exactly like a really heavy frisbee and so why am I talking about discus throwing on the balance podcast well in 2001 Felipe Perrin and colleagues won the Ig Nobel Prize for their research study titled dizziness in discus throwers is related to motion sickness generated while spinning 
oh, dizziness and discus throw should be a, a tongue twister, shouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, it should be. Um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with the Ig Nobel Prize, this is a prize given out annually to unusual achievements in scientific research, which first make people laugh and then make them think. So Perrin and his colleagues sought to answer that age-old question, why don't hammer throwers get dizzy, whilst discus throwers often do and continue to get dizzy no matter how many years they train? I'm sure that is a question that you have laid awake at night thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, So the authors asked 11 discus throwers and 11 hammer throwers, and just to say that just over half of the discus throwers also threw the hammer, and half of the hammer throwers also threw the discus. So there was a bit of overlap. And they asked them if they got dizzy. And they found that dizziness was reported by 59% of the sportsmen while throwing discus, but none while throwing the hammer. Hmm. What? Yet they involve quite a similar action of spinning. And because several individuals practice both, as we said, these results kind of exclude the hypothesis of individual susceptibility to dizziness. So then, why? Well, to answer this, they watched slow motion videos of each thrower and they kind of broke down the movements and steps to see what was involved. And they found a difference in something called spotting. So I don't know if you ever uh, heard of spotting. It's quite often referred to in terms of ballet dancers. And it's a technique to prevent dizziness when spinning or turning. And as a dancer or a hammer thrower or a discus thrower turns, spotting is performed by rotating the body and head at different rates. So while the body rotates smoothly and at a relatively constant speed, the head periodically rotates much faster and then stops, it kind of like flicks round. And this kind of fixes the person's gaze on a single location called the spot. Uh, And since they're fixing their eyes on a single spot over and over again, they're actually able to kind of fool their brains into thinking that they're moving in a kind of straight line rather than, you know, spinning round and round, which would make them very dizzy. And so they found that uh, hammer throwers use this technique of spotting more during the steps of their throw routine compared to the discus throwers. Therefore, because they spot a lot less it makes them less likely, sorry, more likely that they will become dizzy. And then they also found that not only that, discus throwers also have to jump while they're throwing, while hammer throwers don't. And that jump may also be upsetting the vestibular system even more. So there you go. Answer that age old question. (laughs) I'm so glad I have an answer to that. That's something I've wanted to know for a very long time, (laughs) especially in my long standing discus throwing career. So now it's time for Physiology in Film. So this is the part of the show where we explore some of the physiology behind the blockbusters. Well, balance is a really difficult one, Emily. Yep, I'm, I'm not going to I'm lie. sorry that I gave you this uh, one. <laughs> uh, so you won't be surprised that I'm just not doing it at all, to be that honest. That does seem to be your style for a lot of things, or just like tenuous. Yeah. But, I, but I always very a much enjoy them. Yes, so I'm not going to talk about a particular film because I'm sure there are films out there that are related to balance, but they're a bit niche, like there's nothing really popular where I can kind of bust the myth. 
So instead, I'm not even going to bust a myth. I'm just going to talk about something that's kind of interesting. And I'm going to talk about a type of film in general, which is 3D films. Great. Very interesting. Yeah. So it's not so much busting a myth, as I said, as just talking about some of the science behind the phenomenon of 3D motion sickness. Oh. Yeah. So one example of this is the film Avatar that came out in 2009. And apparently it got a lot of complaints because a lot of people that went to go see it in the cinema started feeling really, really sick when they were watching the 3D version of this film. So I don't know if you're a fan of 3D films at all, Emily. I I think I saw the film Interstellar in 3D, but that was maybe one of the only ones I've seen in 3D. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, I'm not a fan. I mean, I don't. it doesn't make me feel sick or anything, but I just find it quite annoying and I find the motion a bit sort of strange yeah. and stuttered, so I just don't enjoy it. But apparently a lot of people get this thing called 3D motion sickness. And a couple of people have done studies on this that do suggest that 3D films can induce motion sickness in some people. One study by Slimini in 2013, which used the standardised simulator sickness questionnaire, found that people watching 3D films felt more sick than those watching 2D films. Mm. But let's just for a second have a little think about the standardised simulator sickness questionnaire. As I often do. What is involved in that questionnaire? (laughs) Surely do you feel sick is enough. (laughs) Uh, But clearly not. So I'd really like to have a look at that questionnaire one day. And so the reason why people feel this 3D motion sickness is because of conflicting inputs to the brain. So when you're watching a film with lots of movement, your eyes send signals to tell the brain that the body's in motion. But inside the inner ear, in the vestibular system, where the movement of fluid is used to sense motion and balance, no change in the body's position is detected which leads to nausea. So this is actually the opposite to travel sickness. So obviously, if you're in a car reading a book, uh, your eyes are focused on the page and don't sense the body is moving, but the fluid in the ears is moving with the movement of the car. So again, it's conflicting inputs, but this is the opposite of motion sickness. And in fact, you're actually more likely to become nauseous when watching a 3D film if you also experience travel sickness. Mm -hmm. Apparently, there's actually quite a big variation in the vestibular system function within the population. And it's thought that those with slightly more sensitive vestibular systems are more likely to experience motion sickness. And you're also more likely to experience motion sickness if you're a child between the ages of 2 and 12, a pregnant woman or a migraine sufferer. Wow, okay. But there's also someone that suggests that you might just have better 3D motion perception. So this is the visual skill you might use in real life to judge the distance of a ball flying towards you. Mm -hmm. This is another throwback to (laughs) sports days, PE, people throwing (laughs) footballs around. (laughs) So Sean Green from the University of Wisconsin did a study that illustrates that those with better 3D motion perception were more likely to feel sick after a 3D film. So if you do feel sick, don't worry. It might just be that your visual skills are just too highly tuned for (laughs) 3D films. Uh, So I really wanted to find out why these conflicting messages might lead to us feeling sick. Because really, what's the point of our bodies feeling sick if this is happening? And to be honest, scientists still don't know. Um, But there is one theory that is quite interesting. And people think that this might relate to the body's response to feeling or being poisoned. So apparently the conflict between two senses can mimic the effect of some poisons. So the brain is evolutionarily programmed to initiate behaviours that will get rid of the poison. So vomiting. Mm. Uh, So I don't know if that's true, but that's interesting. So that was my very unfilm related physiology and film. Just talking about a few interesting facts about the vestibular system and 3D films. Well, I found that enlightening, Amy. I'm glad, thank you. And next time I endeavour to find a film, an actual film. <laughs> so we've heard a lot about what the vestibular system is and why it's important. 
But what can happen when it goes wrong? While balance disorders don't tend to be fatal, they can be extremely damaging to quality of life. We spoke to Raymond Reynolds, a senior lecturer in multi-control at the University of Birmingham, to find out more about disorders of the vestibular system. There are various acute and chronic conditions which cause the signals from the vestibular system to become faulty. And these give us false sensations of movement when there is no movement. And this can cause us to become dizzy and ultimately nauseous. Now in terms of things which affect many people, one of the most common examples of this is when you've had too much to drink. And you lie back in bed and you experience the spinning room sensation. And this is a direct effect of alcohol on the vestibular system. Now the exact mechanism is still under debate. But people think what might be happening is that the alcohol is changing the ability of the semicircular canals to respond to rotation. And they start responding to tilt by mistake. And so when you tilt your head back, the canals uh, inappropriately respond to that because they've been infiltrated with alcohol. And the sensors are no longer... Um, neutrally buoyant, so they start um, rising because they've become lighter than the surrounding fluid. And this gives you a sense that you're rotating or spinning. And in fact, if you look at someone who is experiencing that phenomenon when they're lying back in bed and have tilted their head backwards, if you were to be able to measure their eye movements, you would in fact see that they're experiencing a very profound eye movement. We call that a nystagmus. And that's because their vestibular ocular reflex, this system I described earlier, is being activated inappropriately um, because of the alcohol. Now this is a situation that I'm sure many of us can relate to. You lie down in bed after a couple of drinks and the world starts spinning around you. So it turns out this is all thanks to our vestibular system. Are there any other common conditions that relate to the vestibular system? Well one of the most common vestibular pathologies is a condition called benign positional paroxysmal vertigo. It's a bit of a mouthful, and uh, that's BPPV for short. It's relatively common, typically affecting uh, people from middle age onwards. And similar to the example I gave with alcohol, um, people typically experience this not when they're drunk, but when they lie backwards in bed. And they'll experience uh, a fairly brief but profound sense of spinning, which eventually dies away after a minute or two. This is a fairly well understood condition and not so serious as the word benign would tell us. And basically it's because some of the crystals within the vestibular system become dislodged and start floating around inside the fluid of the canals. So when you lie backwards, these crystals will become dislodged, they will, they will start causing the fluid to rotate inappropriately. And similarly, they will give you a false sensation of, of rotation. Now, we have a pretty good understanding of that condition, and it turns out there's a very, very simple treatment which simply involves physically rotating the head in order to reposition these crystals and put them back roughly where they, they're supposed to be. This is called the Epley Maneuver, and essentially involves the clinician holding the head of the patient and then tilting them backwards in a, a rather violent-looking maneuver and then waiting for these crystals to realign. And essentially, they once, once you've done that, that patient should be reasonably free of attacks for quite some time. Um, so that's BPPV, a very, fairly common uh, vestibular disorder which affects us in middle age. 
So as Raymond said, this is quite a common condition, which I think, Emily, you can relate to. Yeah, I can. I've actually had benign paraproximal vertigo a couple of times. Most recently, it was about two years ago and it lasted for about a week. And I can only describe it as feeling like I was constantly kind of a bit drunk. So I I distinctly remember this like one experience when I got off the train and I had to walk from one side of Brixton in South London to another And it was rush hour and there were loads of people around. And I just had to do this kind of um, dodging kind of scenario between people and trying to find like lampposts and bus stops I could just cling on to for a couple of moments of stability before I then had to like make my way to the next one. It's just this horrible feeling that your kind of vision is very, uh, it's kind of always moving very very weird and not a very nice um, experience and so I went to the doctor and kind of the only treatment that they could provide was something where they uh, kind of rotate your head in these different angles to try and get the little kind of crystal that's stuck in your ear canals dislodged and that did actually work and it was fine but it was a really weird experience and not something that I would ever like to have again please (laughs) it does sound absolutely awful but at least it is a treatable condition so I guess you had this the canalith repositioning procedure I think that's what they call it yeah so at least they at least they have got treatments for it Yep, exactly. Um, And so we were also interested in what were some other kind of more serious things that could go wrong with our vestibular system. There are other disorders, um, perhaps more uncommon than BPPV. So, for example, there is a condition called Meniere's disease. Um, Again, not fully understood, but Meniere's is, is a more serious disease where we can experience faulty signals emanating from the vestibular system typically from one ear at a time. And this gives us very profound sensation of spinning. And in its worst case, it can cause people to become very nauseous and sick. And if it cannot be treated, ultimately the the last resort is to actually destroy the vestibular system um, in order to prevent any signals coming from that side. So that's Meniere's disease. Now, I don't know about you, but destroying the vestibular system sounds like quite an extreme step. So are there any side effects? In the acute stage, there definitely is serious side effects. So, for example, if you took a healthy person and removed their left vestibular inputs, they would experience quite profound spinning and nausea for many hours and days before they ultimately compensate. And the reason for that is that the way the brain interprets vestibular information is that it actually compares the difference between the left and the right ear. So we, even when our head is perfectly still, we have information flooding in from both the left and the right side. And if you move your head in one direction, you will cause a slight increase in the neural signal on one side and a decrease on the other side. And that what the brain is interested in is the difference between the two sides. So if you therefore suddenly, through surgery or some other means, completely remove the signal from one side of the head, then um, apart from obviously rendering that vestibular system on that side defunct, you'll also produce a very, very sharp difference between the left and the right side. And that will cause quite severe acute effects in terms of dizziness and nausea. 
So destroying the vestibular system on one side can cause some pretty horrible side effects in the short term, but over time our central nervous system is able to adapt to these changes. So if these problems happen because of conflicting messages from the two vestibular systems, what happens if we destroy both of them? If you destroyed both of them, yes, you wouldn't actually suffer from what I just described. Uh, you'd be fine. Unfortunately, though, usually this surgery, it, it's very difficult to spare the hearing and selectively destroy the vestibular system. So depending upon the disease, these operations uh, usually destroy hearing on the same side. And so you have to be in a pretty desperate situation before a surgeon will consider that. So, while destroying both sides of the vestibular system would prevent the short-term side effects such as dizziness and nausea, it's generally not performed because it's extremely hard to damage the vestibular system without also damaging hearing. So how do we diagnose vestibular disorders? Often when the vestibular system goes wrong, we can experience symptoms of dizziness and nausea. And if you turn up at a clinic, a neurology clinic, for example, and uh, the doctor suspects you have a vestibular disorder, then one of the first things they'll do is recommend you have a test called caloric irrigation. And essentially what that involves is hot or cold water flushed through your ear. And this has the effect of activating one of the canals and causing a sense of rotation. So if you're a healthy person and your vestibular system is intact, then this will activate that reflex I described, so the vestibular ocular reflex, causing an eye movement in response to the sense of rotation. Now that's fine and that, that works, but one of the problems with that test is it's, it's fairly invasive. As you can imagine, it's quite messy flushing the ear with hot or cold water continuously, and the sense of rotation is also quite profound. So there's a number of health contraindications, which mean that many people can't actually have that test. So we're trying to develop a new test for vestibular disorders, a new diagnostic, which is far less invasive. And it involves activating the nerve with very, very tiny currents applied to the back of the head. So not painful, perfectly comfortable uh, levels of currents. And again, in a healthy person, this has the effect of activating the vestibular nerve, causing a false sense of head movement. And again, we can measure this in terms of the evoked eye movements. So we're developing this technique called electrical vestibular stimulation in the hope that it might ultimately augment or even replace the existing mainstay of vestibular diagnosis, which is actually quite invasive. So currently one of the most common tests is called caloric irrigation, but this is quite invasive and can cause some discomfort. But hopefully this new technique being developed by Raymond and his colleagues at the University of Birmingham will be able to replace the more invasive tests currently being used. So now it's time for the part of the show called Physiology, True or False? So this is the part of the show where we take some common physiology myths and try and prove whether they're true or false. Okay, so my true or false is blind people have better hearing. True or false? Hmm. Oh, there is kind of that sort of rumour, isn't there, that people lose one sense, heightened senses elsewhere, oh, so perhaps oh, something along those lines. Oh, maybe. Maybe you're right. Well, I mean, yes, true. Um, 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, kind of yes and no. So blind people can't physically hear better than sighted people. So both sighted and non-sighted people hear by vibrations from sound coming into the ear and making those tiny hair-like structures within the inner ear move. And then these hair cells transform this movement into electrical signals that our brains can then process and how well a person can hear largely depends on how intact these hair cells are and interestingly when these hair cells are lost they actually don't grow back and this process of kind of hearing isn't any different for sighted compared to non-sighted people. However, you kind of touched on the point when you said kind of our heightened senses uh, and that's exactly it. So blind people do often outperform sighted people on hearing tasks, for example, when locating the source of a noise. But if the difference doesn't come from how we hear, then where does it come from? Uh, And Dr. Luce van Damme, who is at Essex University, wrote a fantastic article in the publication The Conversation and explained the reasons for differences in sighted versus non-sighted people's hearing. And it emerges when we look at how the brain is processing sensory information. She explains that perception occurs when the brain interprets signals that our sensory organs provide and different parts of the brain respond to information from different sensory organs. So there are areas of the brain that process visual information, so that's the visual cortex, and there are areas of the brain that process sound information, the auditory cortex. But when a sense like vision is lost, the brain does something really quite remarkable. It reorganises the function of these brain areas. So that's kind of what you said, right? So for those who have lost their sight, they may have a larger brain capacity for processing the information from other senses, for example, sound. Hmm. So Dr. Luz van Damme also mentions that the extent of reorganisation in the brain depends on when someone loses their sight. Because during childhood, the brain is a bit more able to adapt. It's a bit more kind of plastic in that way um, and can adapt to this kind of change and reorganise. And as a result, people who have been blind from a very young age show a much greater level of reorganisation in the brain. And people who become blind early in life also tend to outperform sighted people as well as those who became blind later in life in hearing and touch perceptual tasks. Blind people also rely more on their remaining senses to do everyday tasks, which means that they train their remaining senses on a daily basis, maybe kind of more than sighted people. And the reorganised brain, together with the greater experience in using their remaining senses, are believed to be important factors in blind people kind of having an edge over sighted people in hearing and touch. So there we go. So that's all from us on this month's episode. Thanks to our guests, Doris Bamio and Raymond Reynolds, who helped us to get a grasp on the rather complex topic of balance. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. And if you have, don't forget to subscribe. Join us next time as we explore more of the weird and wonderful world of physiology. I've been Amy Warnock. And I've been Emily Wilde. And we've been getting physiological.
This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society.